Whether it's just little white lies or plagiarism or headline-making financial fraud, lying is a part of our everyday lives. But why do people do it even if they feel it's wrong? In a documentary called Dishonesty, the Truth About Lies, Dan Ariely, a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University, shows that it's often just as easy for humans to justify their reasons for not telling the truth as it is to tell a lie in the first place. On today's Please Explain, we will delve into the ethics, psychology, neurology, and potential rippling effects of even the smallest of fibs with Professor Ariely. The film is currently available on iTunes, on demand, and on DVD, and I'm very pleased that it's brought Dan Ariely back to our show. It's always a pleasure to have you here. And that's no lie. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back. I'm just sorry it's not face-to-face. It's always more fun. Yes, but uh, you're, you teach in, uh, at Duke, and you're in Durham right now. Yeah. Meanwhile, we also, uh, during these segments, invite our audience to join in the conversation. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Dan, you've um, studied various uh, aspects of human behavior for many years. What got you thinking about dishonesty? So it was it was a combination of two things. I was uh, on a flight, um, and I saw one of these IQ tests. You, you know, you have something on page 40, and they ask you a question, and they say, you know, the answers are on page 180. And I kind of looked at the first question. I thought, yes, I, I know the answer. I flipped to the back. Um, I kind of got the reaffirmation. I got it right. And I kept on doing this, and I kind of realized that I was looking ahead. I was looking at the next answer to the next question. And then when I was coming back uh, to the question, I was I discovered I was really smart. Um, but but I kind of <laughs> thought about this was kind of an interesting uh, process about I wanted to have an answer that told me that I was really smart. I think it was like a Mensa test or something like this. And I kind of cheated a little bit, and I was cheating myself. There was no no other person. And that also happened around the time when Enron was around. And, you know, when Enron started the, the, the scandal, it was very easy to point a finger and say, oh, here's just three bad people, and, you know, we're not like them, and that's it. But all of a sudden I realized I was cheating in a very different way. I was cheating myself. I, I wanted to find an answer that I wanted. And I decided to start doing experiments on this because that's usually the way I, I do things is I notice something that I do badly and I try to – um, basically, I guess, comfort myself by figuring out that this is part of the human condition and not just me. So I started doing experiments on, on students in the beginning, and I basically tempted students to take a little extra cash. And here's one way that we do it. We, we give students these die. It's a six-sided die, regular die that you use for games. And we say, please toss it. And we'll see what it comes up on, and you'll get paid accordingly. It comes on six, you'll get six dollars, five, you'll get five dollars, and so on. But we say you can get paid based on the top side or the bottom. Top or bottom, you decide, but don't tell us. So you have a sheet of paper, and you say, yes, I decide top or bottom. Then you toss the die, and it comes, let's say, on five on the bottom and two on the top. You write it down, and then we say, and what did you pick, top or bottom? Now, let's say the die came on five on the bottom and two on the top, and you picked bottom. No problem. You say bottom, and you get $5. But if you pick top, now you have a dilemma. Do you say the truth, top, and get $2, or do you change your mind? Do you say, oh, yes, I really meant bottom and get $5? And people do it 20 times, and every time they decide top or bottom, top or bottom, and they roll it, 
and we find that people are unbelievably lucky. <laughs> and and of course it's not it's not real luck. We find that people people cheat, and people cheat just a little bit, and lots of people cheat a little bit. And, did, did, and does and it here, does it matter that we're really talking about small sums? Would do you think we'd have the same results if we were talking about hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars? So, so let me answer this in in, in two ways. So, so first of all. You know, when we when we did this and we found that lots of people cheated a little bit, this was kind of in contrast to Enron, because Enron kind of, we felt, oh, there's these big cheaters, and it's not all of us. So in the lab, we played with different amounts. We tried something that people could make all the way from something like a dollar per test to a couple of hundred dollars. And we didn't find big differences. In fact, when we went to a big amount, we saw a slight reduction in cheating. But but the question we were asking, you know, still in the lab, you know, how much can we get people to be dishonest? You know, we're, we're limited. So so we said, um, how does it work with really big cheating? Is this is this the same thing or not? And that's what the movie came about. So Yael Milamed, the producer and director of this movie, and I were having discussions, and we said, you know, to, to what degree is what we're capturing in the lab the same thing, and to what degree are big cheaters different in some important ways? So we said, let's just interview them, because we can't really do experiments on millions of dollars. So we said, what if we just talk to them? And we interviewed about 40 people, and each interview took between two and three hours. And what was very important for us was to not just look at what they did at the end, but to think about what they've done in the beginning. What were the first steps? And what was so interesting is that in all of the cases, you look at what these people did at the end, and you say, that's just not me. I can't see myself in, in this, and, and I would have never been like this. But when you look at what they did as a first step, it's very easy for you to say, you know what? I could have done that as well. Um, and, and, and all of a sudden, it makes the whole thing um, much, much sadder, much more understandable, and actually much more worrisome. Because if you take this to the extreme, um, this slippery slope of starting with a small step and ending up really doing terrible things suggests that what differentiates big cheaters from non-big cheaters is kind of opportunity rather than character or personality or something like this. And, and it's a very worrisome thought. Well, you were conducting your research during a time when there were some pretty famous scandals. Do you wish you could have spoken to Donald Rumsfeld about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq or Lance Armstrong about doping in sports, or perhaps A-Rod, or Bernie Madoff? Uh, I wish. Actually, Bernie, Bernie is a neighbor, right? He's in North Carolina in, in prison. I've, I've been trying. Uh, I, I can't talk to him. But, you know, I, we, we talked to Jed Rakoff, who was uh, Bernie Madoff's judge. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we asked him generally about Madoff, but more generally. And, and he doesn't think that prisoners or that, that, that criminals really think long term about their behavior. I mean, look, think about something like the death penalty. The, the, the logic of the death penalty is to say that people are going to think about the long-term consequences of their actions. So, you know, you, you come home, you're pissed off with your significant other, uh, you go to the kitchen, you take a big knife out, and then you say, oh, I forgot, we have the death penalty, Let, <laughs> let's do something else instead. The, the, the logic is that we think long-term, and those long-term thinking would get us to think in advance uh, about it. Now, there's actually no evidence for that. Even if you look at the death penalty, 
um, there's no evidence that it reduces crime rate, the kind of crime that is that gets a death penalty. Now, think about all kinds of other things. What are even cases where people have shown the ability to think long term? There's just not that many, right? We overeat and undersave. We text and drive. We do all kinds of things that are not about that show that we don't. We're not good at long term thinking. And the usual approach is to say, let's just create bigger punishments. But the reality is that because of slippery slopes and because of rationalization, it's very easy to take the first step without thinking long-term, and then you rationalize, you become a slightly different person, you take the next step, the next step, the next step, and all of a sudden, and everybody we talk to is like that, all of a sudden these people don't recognize themselves. I want to talk about rationalization in just a moment, but let's take this call from John from Bradley Beach, New Jersey. Hi, John. Hey, Leonard. I wanted to thank and speak to um, a phenomenon. It was brought up on Radio Lab, where they talk about really successful people, if it's successful athletes or maybe people in business, and they sort of have to lie to themselves, like tell themselves that they can do the impossible. And the result of the Radio Lab segment was that it's kind of necessary, like they need to lie to themselves that they're the best or that they can do this impossible thing. I wonder if that's come up in any of his studies. Yeah, so so th- this question is really about overconfidence. And overconfidence is kind of a blessing and a curse, right? It basically gets people to do things. Uh, think about even something like opening restaurants, right? If people were just looking at the base rate of how often restaurants fail, yeah, nobody would ever open a new place. But you need to have some chutzpah. You need to have some belief that you're not like everybody else, and uh, sometimes you would fail <laughs> with that belief, but sometimes uh, it will be successful. So I think there's no question about that. Um, but we found actually something else which is um, maybe even more uh, stressing, which is that creativity uh, goes hand in hand with dishonesty. So we, we looked very deeply at the question of what kind of situations get people to be more dishonest. But we also want to kind of understand what kind of people are more dishonest. So we try to see whether people who take more risks are more dishonest. No, no evidence for that. We try to see whether people who are more intelligent are either more or less risk-taking. We didn't find any evidence. But we did find that creative uh, people are more are more dishonest. And if you think about this idea of rationalization, it really fits very well because what we find with rationalization is that people want to both feel that they're honest people but also gain a little bit from dishonesty. We want to kind of find a balance when we don't think of ourselves as bad people, but nevertheless we gain from it. And it's all about weaving a tale. It's about telling a story about why this is actually okay. And when people are more creative, they can basically tell better stories. And because of that, creativity uh, increases dishonesty. But you also have, uh, in, in the film, you talk to a bicyclist who uh, engaged in doping, and he said that he never thought of doping until he heard that everybody else was doing it. Yeah, this this was it, it's it's one of those heartbreaking stories. Uh, this is a guy, uh, Joe Pep, who really all his life dreamed about being a cyclist, and he left cycling for a couple of years, and he comes back, and all of a sudden he's slower than everybody else, and he cries and he kind of worries to his friends, and he doesn't know what to do. And one of his friends said, you know, here's a a doctor you should go and visit. And he goes to visit the doctor, and there's a white coat and a stethoscope, and there's a prescription for EPO, which is a, 
a cancer drug that also increases the production of red blood cells. And he goes to the pharmacy, and his insurance company pays for the drug. He just has the copay. And then he goes back to the room, and he has lots of other injections, legal things, vitamins and so on, and he injects one more thing. And then he finds that lots of other people are doing it, and they're doing it publicly, and then there's more drugs. And, and then, then what happens is a shortage of EPO. And he has friends on the Chinese team that put him in touch with the Chinese factory, and he helps his whole team. Then there's another team that, that wants his help, and he helps them as well. And eventually, you take a guy that all he wants to do is to cycle, and he's a drug dealer. Right? And, and you look at that, and, and we talked to Joe, and I said, when would you have stopped? And if you think about this as a, as a classical example of a slippery slope, he said that if he thinks that if the insurance company would have rejected the claim, he would have stopped. But, but imagine you're in this situation, and a friend gives you an address to a doctor. Don't you go? And the doctor gives you a prescription. Don't you fill it up? And you get the injection. Don't you use one? Like, when, when exactly would you, would you stop? And, and we see that over and over, and it's terribly, terribly sad. Could the similar rationalizations to that cyclist be said of people who work in the financial sector and uh, other areas where we find people who th- thought that they were good folks who wound up doing awful things? I think that's exactly it. I think actually the financial industry is much worse, and it's it's much worse because um, the situation of the financial industry uh, sets you up for really having a tremendous ability to think that you're behaving well when when in fact you're not. So so think about rationalization. Rationalization is all about the idea of saying, okay, I, this is not this is not really this is not really wrong. Um, and, and what is rationalization influenced by? Um, nobody is really suffering from this, and everybody else is doing it. And I'm actually doing it for a good cause, and that's what my job is. And, and, and what happens is that in the financial industry, it's really easy to rationalize uh, because you don't see the consequences of your actions, and you think that everybody else is doing it, and you're maximizing shareholder value. And all of those things are fantastic ways to basically think to yourself that you're actually doing the right, the right thing. And, you know, if you look at some of the, <coughs> some of the scandals, if we try to go just recently, the, the LIBOR scandal, a lot of the people who, who took the actions and manipulated the markets uh, were not people who were making lots of money. Those were people kind of at the bottom of the financial uh, wealth pyramid. Uh, they were, you know, kind of working worker bees. Um, and they were cheating not for themselves as much as for the company. And, and again, in, in the movie, we, we saw quite a few examples of these, of people who did not embezzle. Like when you embezzle, you take money for yourself from the company. But lots of cheating, people are actually taking tremendous personal risk to help the company which is a very different story. And all of a sudden you say, what's, what's driving that? It's not selfishness. It's actually a bizarre sense of feeling committed to the company and cheating for the, for the benefit of the company. But also you wind up with the head of Goldman Sachs saying that, he, that his company was doing God's work after they were yep. caught uh, engaging in all sorts of, um, what, what do I yep. want to say, unacceptable activity. That's right. And, and you know, what, what happens in the financial industry is that the ideology of the financial industry really allows you to rationalize all kinds of things. 
right? So to basically say, you know what, if we're selling something and somebody buying it, it must mean that it's the right thing. Or to basically say, you know, we are committed to our <laughs> shareholder value and that's what we try to maximize, and that's our obligation. I'll tell you, we, we did this experiment in which we we told people they're in charge of a little bank, and on the computer they could see how much money the bank was, was making, and at some point the bank was starting to make less money. And the people that were in charge of this virtual bank were, you know, getting money based on, on the share performance. So they wanted the, the bank to do well. And, and we gave people an opportunity, as the bank was not doing so well, uh, to engage in what's called in the industry revenue enhancement, which is kind of a nice word to say screwing your customers, which is basically to um, – um, you know, increase fees and hidden fees and interest rate and all kinds of things, and we wanted to see in which one of those they would engage. And then some people were told that the motto of the bank is to maximize shareholder value, and the other one was not. So what happened? Everybody wants to maximize their own profits because, you know, they're, they're getting paid for in the experiment uh, based on how well their bank is doing. Uh, but once we gave them this excuse they're trying to maximize shareholder value, their morality basically dropped. So they wanted to use these revenue enhancement approaches for their own selfish reason, but we gave them an excuse, and the excuse was in the form of ideology saying maximize shareholder value, and all of a sudden say, oh, yes, yes, we have to do it. It's the moral thing to do. So I think that the financial industry – has a really um, difficult time figuring out what's moral and not moral because their own incentives are so tied up to one kind of an answer um, and they can't see reality in a, in a different way. We have to take a little break. I'm speaking with Dan Ariely, who's written a number of books, uh, and they brought him to our show in the past. He's also uh, the... Uh, the person in the center of a new documentary film called Dishonesty, the Truth About Lies, which is currently available on iTunes, on demand, and on DVD. Uh, Dan Ariely is a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University. And uh, after we take this break, I want to come back and talk about one of my favorite experiments that you conducted, the one that involved the vending machines. But first this. Tell me the truth, baby. Don't tell me no lie. Do you love me or some other guy? I want to know before I walk out that door. Do you love me? Love me. And we are back with Professor Dan Ariely, uh, Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University. He uh, is the... Uh, did you produce this film? Um, you know, I, I got I got the producer credit, let's just say it this way. I, um, I, I did not um, hurt the production too much, and I was running around a little bit. Uh, I did many of the interviews, and I tried to learn a little bit about uh, the adventure of making a movie. Uh, but I can't say I was that useful. 
But the the film is fascinating. It's called Dishonesty, the Truth About Lies, and it's currently available on iTunes, on demand, and on DVD. And we are talking about lying on today's Please Explain, inviting your calls at 212-433-9692. Before we get to uh, the whole business about vending machines, which I think uh, will resonate with pretty much everybody who hears it, um, listeners uh, have been writing in some questions. Uh, David from Stanford wants to know if animals lie. Yes. So the answer is yes, but they lie in a very different way. And actually, animals are more rational than us. So um, let's say you're a monkey, and there's a hierarchy on mon- of monkeys, and you're not the highest uh, monkey in the hierarchy. And you find an apple. Well, according to the monkey rules, you're supposed to give it to the high hierarchy monkey, but... Um, if you are a monkey and you think that the, nobody will see you, you're not going to give uh, the apple to, to the high hierarchy uh, monkey. Now, now, that means that animals kind of lie in a rational way, that they do the cost-benefit analysis. And when human comes to, to play, um, you know, we, we do lie a lot, and it's a problem, and we need to think about how to fix it, and part of it is the erosion of trust and the ramification and so on. But it's also amazing how often we have opportunities to lie and we don't take them. So think about your own life in your office. Just walk around and see how many wallets and iPads and iPhones and all kinds of things, you, and books and all kinds of things you could take away and nobody would find out. Or think about the last time you went to a restaurant and they had some very nice cutlery. You, know, you could have taken some of it and nobody would have, would have known that you did. And the fact is that we have lots of opportunities and we have an internal moral compass that, that tells us this is, I don't even want to think about this. It will make me think worse about myself. Uh, so what, what we do over the years and part of the socialization process is we, we take into the into account, we internalize the value of society and some of it about honesty. Sadly, we don't go all the way, but but we do uh, quite an incredible job if you think about it compared to animals. In the wake of the Brian Williams scandal, articles were written about how even though he was lying about his experiences in Iraq, he believed he was telling the truth. Is is that possible? I think so. Um, so, so, so here's kind of, a, you know, I haven't talked to him. <laughs> Um, but but here is kind of my guess based on talking to other people. My guess is that he got he got to that that place, and he wanted to convey to people the emotionality of the experience, and he decided to do it through himself. Right? He said people like me. I mean, I'm not sure he said it consciously, right? But he basically said, let me let me convey how this happens, and he basically makes some stuff up and <laughs> adds adds color to it and puts himself in the center and I think it does it to get people to feel more emotionally connected to the to the tragedy of the situation and then after a while he tells it a couple of more times and he has images in his mind now the images he has in his mind are self-created are things that he created and he put in his in his head but but it's a little hard to distinguish and he keeps on telling the story and telling the story so Imagine that we, we took him in one of those cases where he tells the story on the eighth time, and we connected him to a lie detector. And the lie detector can detect whether people are stressed and feel that they are saying something untruthful. I don't think he would have felt that way. I think that by that time, it would integrate into his into his life. And would that now, also I, apply to the, so many other people in public life? Bill O'Reilly has been caught, Ben Carson, Hillary Clinton, 
um, all telling stories that kind of embellished or put themselves at the center, made them the heroes of some event I, that they didn't really I think, do. Absolutely. I, th- I think it's very easy to imagine this um, this process happening. Now, if you took these people and you put them under kind of FBI interrogation with, you know, bright lights and you say, hey, let's just play everything um, accurately, would they, would they be able to recognize that this did not actually happen? I think in most cases the answer would be yes. Well, but it depends we on whether you're waterboarding them or not. But what about a <laughs> lie detector test? I think yeah. I think a lie detector, when when it just happens passively, lots of people would not uh, would not respond to it because at the moment um, they just start believing in the truthfulness of what uh, of what they're saying. And you know, there's something in lots of research in memory has shown that it's really easy to implant memories in people. You can basically tell them all kinds of things. People start to imagining how it would look like. They have images of that, and they basically put it into their minds, and they start believing uh, that this is uh, indeed the case. So, so I think that's, uh, that's incredibly devastating and also um, very, very dangerous. But in politics, there's one more thing. So we did uh, some research recently on, in politics, and we found out that politicians that, that sorry, that citizens want their politicians to lie. And why do we want our politicians to lie? Is because we think that politics is dirty, and we have a goal. There is something we want out of the process. We want our regulations, our types of regulation. You know, we we have our ideology, and we want our ideology to to win. And we're willing to sacrifice things for that. And people seem to want people who are willing to sacrifice honesty for ideology in order to push things through. So imagine that you're on one side of the political fence and you want to either you know, increase um, um, health insurance or decrease the role of the government in, in health insurance. And, and this seems to, me ver- to you very important. And you're willing to support a politician that would be willing to do kind of backstabbing deals, um, inflate data, change things, uh, just as long as you can uh, pass the ideology that you're, you're building. So what we do is we start looking at politics as a means to an end, and because of that, we're willing to accept dishonesty as just one of the tools. And then sometimes we expect people to be dishonest uh, for a good cause. There are stories in the film about lying to keep a birthday party a surprise to comfort a woman during a terrifying airplane trip. Um, yes. So uh, is is the same part of the brain at work when we're doing those kinds of lies? I think so. So so if you think about it, all, all kinds of lies uh, are basically trade-offs. Uh, they're trade-offs between different human values, right? So if you think about uh, politeness or social lying or lying for other people, these are trade-offs. These are trade-offs between what is more important for me, honesty or the benefit of somebody else. I just had a chat um, yesterday with a couple of oncologists here at Duke who uh, wanted to figure out what is the right way to lie to patients, right? And, and they have patients, and these patients have really low probability uh, outcome of, of success. And they say that they feel that their their patients want them to lie, uh, to lie to them, right? That they don't really want to understand 
reality. And, and the question is, what, what is their role? What is their role in terms of giving comfort versus uh, giving um, people the, the, the sense that what is the right information to, to make decisions based on? And it's actually very, very complex. Um, and, and if you think about lying as trade-offs, it's always the case, right? And now, the trade-offs are different. Sometimes it's your benefit versus honesty. Sometimes it's my benefit versus honesty. Sometimes it's the benefit of people I like. Um, but but these, are, these are trade-offs that are actually very complex, and we don't always solve them on the honest side. And, Dan, we have very little time left, and I promise the audience the vending machine story. Vending machine. Okay, so... Uh, so I own a vending machine, and uh, one time I set it up, and, and the way to set it up was I set it up with uh, saying 75 cents on the outside, but on the inside it was set up for zero. So basically every time you put in money and you pressed on a candy, the machine gave you the candy and all the money <clears throat> because everything was more than a zero. And I had a big sign that says, if something is wrong with the machine, please call this number, and the number was my cell phone number. And, and the first question, of course, is what percentage of the people called? And the answer was zero. Nobody called. And then the next question is, how many candies did people take? And what was interesting is that lots of people took three and four. That was the most common um, number of candies to take. Nobody took five. And the idea is that five would, would already be stealing. Kind of it's, you know, it's, it's over the, the boundary of acceptable. And now the question is, how can three or four be acceptable? And I think that what was happening in people's minds is that they would justify it. They said something like, I remember this other vending machine that took my money and didn't give me a candy. And that other vending machine must have been a close relative of, of this one. <laughs> and I'm not really stealing. I'm just kind of evening my vending karma. There's some justice that is, that is happening. And maybe the only question is, what, what, what took it so long uh, to come here? Um, and then the final interesting observation was that people called other people to participate as well. So there is this notion of social proof that if other people are behaving in a certain way, we feel more justified to behave that way. What was so interesting about the vending machine experiment is people were trying to get people after the fact to participate as well and therefore feel more justified that their behavior was more honest because of that, or more, more standard. That's how people behave more regularly. Dan, Christopher in Manhattan wants to know if you've become better at lying now that you've done this research. So I don't think I'm a better liar. Uh, I'm certainly much more worried about it. <laughs> Um, so, so look, a, a part of the issue, of course, has to do with understanding the temptations that we all face, uh, including conflicts of interest. So, you know, conflicts of interest are incredibly eroding, right? And um, what, when you walk around life and you worry about conflicts of interest, you realize how common they are. You realize that your dentist has a conflict of interest because they tell you what's wrong with your teeth and also get to get paid if more things are wrong with your teeth. You realize that your doctors get paid differently depending on if you're doing a procedure or you take a medication or if you decide to do watchful waiting. You've got to make this very you, quick. So I am incredibly cautious these days about slippery slope and conflicts of interest, and I try to eradicate them from my life anywhere I go. 
Dan Ariely's research is at the center of a documentary called Dishonesty, The Truth About Lies, which is currently available on iTunes, On Demand, and on DVD. Dan Ariely is a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University. Thank you so much for being on our show again. My pleasure, as always. Looking forward to next time.